adversaries are relentless, and they're only getting smarter, faster, and more sophisticated. Knowing their game is the only way to beat them. That's why we're here. Learn what it takes to protect against even the most sophisticated attacks. Welcome to the Adversary Universe podcast. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Adversary Universe podcast. I'm Christian Rodriguez, and today we have some pretty interesting topics. In fact, we uh, have a guest speaker that um, I will introduce very shortly, but we're going to spend some time digging into the alphabet soup of cybersecurity compliance regulations from everything from the SEC, and, and we're not talking about the, uh, uh, the football uh, reference, we're talking about the Securities and Exchange uh, Commission. Commission. Thank you so much. It's been a long day. Uh, FTC, yeah, you know me. Uh, CISA, you name it, right? We're going to de demystify a lot of the most uh, recent regulations that are coming about as it relates to compliance reporting and, and you name it. Um, and yeah, we're, we're going to get into some, some interesting topics that I think is, is kind of top of mind given some, some recent activities that we're seeing, even from a, a slight ch uh, change in the direction of some adversary tradecraft. And so this is the Adversary Universe podcast. And naturally, you know, as we cover some of these topics that hopefully you haven't stopped listening or hit the stop button because you heard the term regulation or compliance or even SEC, uh, hopefully you, you can understand why this is so relevant to this concept of adversary tracking. So with me today as my special guest, um, it's none other than Mr. Drew Bagley. He's our VP and counsel for uh, privacy and policy. And you do all the cool stuff, right? You, you're talking to the people that matter, Drew. So welcome to the show, first and foremost. You know, we're really excited to, to chat with you today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Always fun to hang out with you, Christian. And you are one of the people who matter. So that's why I'm here. Oh, man. You know what? This is like the second compliment I've had this morning. This year. This year. This year, actually. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, you know, well, yeah. I wasn't trying to brag, but uh, yeah, this year. <laughs> So um, what's going on? All right, I think we, we've been seeing some, some interesting articles posted recently as it relates to some changes in the way uh, that specifically the SEC um, has brought on some new uh, policies around the way that you know, publicly traded companies report ultimately what is a material breach. And I really want to get into that concept or, or the definition of what that means. Um, and so I think you know, I was I was thinking about this earlier. Uh, I posted something on my LinkedIn profile uh, not long ago on, hey, here's some weekend ideas. Um, and one of them was contemplating exactly what a material breach is. And I kind of came up with this analogy, right? Uh, just to add a little humor to this concept of, you know, you're at this family barbecue. And, you know, let's just say the SEC is like your nosy Aunt Martha. Uh, and in the past, if you, if you accidentally burnt one of the burgers, right? Or several of your burgers, right? You know, yeah. like a cybersecurity incident. You may whisper this to like your cousin Joe and be like, hey man, I totally messed these up. And you both take a swig of whatever beer it is that you're drinking, which by the way, should be a sponsor, right? Here would be a great opportunity <laughs> for us to say, hey, this is, you know, brought to you by, you know, Falcon Malt Liquor. Um, <laughs> yeah, we should have Falcon Malt Liquor. We, have Falcon we malt did liquor. have a contract wine, remember? Yeah, uh, I do remember that. There's right. a Cabernet, right? Yeah, yeah, that's Almost right. Almost a decade ago. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Um, but okay, so you whispered to your, to your cousin and then... Um, you know, now though, it, that was kind of it. That was the, the incident that was reported, right? Like, hey, we have a bit of a burnt burger and we're good to go. But now let's just say the SEC regulation is, is like Aunt Martha is saying, you know, she's making this decree that any barbecue blunders must be announced to the entire family in a state of embarrassment. And you have to give every family member a very detailed email about why you burnt uh, the burgers. And you also have to send it to all distant relatives that, that you've never met. And so 
feel like this is an interesting, you know, and you have to do it immediately within a very short amount of time, right? Otherwise you're going to be, you know, publicly flogged. And so I want, I want your take on, okay, what does this really mean, right? These SEC regulations on the reporting a material breach within four days, which is a very, very short amount of time. And that definition itself, I think, is something that it seems, and maybe I'm missing something, but it seems a little ambiguous. I'm not sure if, you know, if, if there's a true definition to, to what a material breach is based upon the SEC's perspective. And then I know that there's also some, some congressional opposition on this as of recent, uh, on, on whether or not this is actually going to pass. And so I really want your take, and maybe if you could share with our listeners, you know, what you've been observing, um, what type of potential impact we see as it relates to, to, to how this changes the industry, the amount of 8Ks that are probably going to flood the market and so forth. And, you know, let's make this a good conversation on why this matters and what we should be cognizant of. And then we'll talk a little bit about some of the adversaries. Absolutely. Have we ever had a back now? Never. Not this Never. year. You know. This year. Um, <laughs> in the year of two compliments. So to continue your barbecue analogy, which I love that, traditionally, when we think about cyber incident reporting or data breach reporting, which is exactly the same, right? Because you could have a personal data breach for a variety of reasons that might not be cyber. You could have a cyber incident that does not involve personal data, but nonetheless, there are a lot of similarities between those requirements and, um, you know, modern times, they often overlap. Well, if we think about those types of requirements that have been on the books for decades, and then we think about the SEC one, traditionally at that barbecue, maybe the person burning the burgers or the person discovering that the burgers are burnt needs to tell one person there. Yeah. And if it's really, really bad, and it's going to really impact the barbecue so that everybody's going to have a bad taste in their mouth. Maybe they need to individually go to each person and let them know, hey, your burger's been burnt. Whereas now the sea change is that instead of telling a regulator something, there is a duty to tell the world as such, mm. right? Yeah. As soon as you put something into that SEC filing, you're essentially telling the world about your cyber incident. So to play on the analogy of then you're telling not only everyone at that barbecue, but every extended relative yeah. um, around the globe about how bad those burgers were. What the idea is here is that the SEC, their purview is to protect investors and to ensure that the markets are fair and regulate markets accordingly. These other laws um, have different equities at play. So traditional state data breach laws from 20 years ago, um, were thinking actually even about different data types. They were thinking mm. specifically about PII yeah. and not what we now think of in modern times as much broader, which is personal data, like modern privacy laws. So even that, the scope was a bit different in addition to what you had to do if you had an incident being different. Now, what's particularly interesting though, is that you have organizations now that are public companies that will fall within the purview of the new SEC regulations going into effect on December 15th and December 18th. I'll get into what goes into effect when in a moment. Okay. But you, you have those, and then you have other entities that might also be critical infrastructure entities that could fall under CERCIA when that goes into effect next year. So that's a critical infrastructure, um, cyber incident reporting hacked. And you have a lot of other requirements that already apply if personal data is involved for many of these entities, or if they're already an entity that is regulated by, by way of part of what they do by some other regulation, could be HIPAA, um, could be GLBA, et cetera. There, yeah. there are many um, sector-specific regulations have incident reporting too. So what we have 
as you described as an alphabet soup. We have an alphabet soup of cyber incident reporting requirements. We also have inconsistencies with the scope in which how an incident is defined, yeah. who needs to be reported, who it needs to be reported to, and most importantly these days, when it needs to be reported. And so that's something where what I think is most important is we should talk about what do these things actually have in common so that if you are an organization, you're trying to prepare, you obviously don't want a cyber incident for purposes of wanting your weekend ruined. Exactly. You absolutely want to figure out how are you, uh, you know, going to recover from a cyber incident and then be in trouble with the regulator. I think you really need to look at what do these things have in common. And, and I'm sure there's, there's substantial overlap, but they are all independently defined, right, at the end of the day. And yeah. so, uh, yeah, I, I, think, I, think, I think that overlap, I think that, that overlap is, is, is something that is, every, every CISO meeting that I've had, when I asked them, like, how, how, how are you interpreting this definition? And what are you reporting? Um, they all have slightly different iterations, right, and definitions on, in, in their wheelhouse. But then they, there's also an increasing concern, which, which I know we'll talk about this later on, but with respect to what they disclose and how they disclose it, there's also this concern of like, does that also introduce a little more risk on telling, on, on exposing something that could ultimately be, be used against them later on, right? And so we'll, we'll talk about the weaponization of this information, you know, later on as we start mapping this into adversary tradecraft. So. Yeah, ab absolutely. Yeah, let me go over what the new SEC requirements require. The SEC worked on these new regulations uh, for pretty much the better half of the past two years, or better part of the past two years, rather. And the ultimate final regulations that came out several months ago fit into three categories. So there is the requirement that you've alluded to, Christian, which is the disclosure of material cyber incidents, cybersecurity incidents. But also there is a requirement, an ongoing requirement, to disclose cybersecurity risk management processes and separately disclose cybersecurity management and governance yeah. for an organization. So in other words, two of the three requirements are really focused on transparency and the requirement for organizations to show how they're preparing against an incident. Sure. And then there is that one requirement that if you have an incident and it rises to the threshold of being a material incident, then there is a duty to report that through SEC filings, which again, are a lot different than just telling a regulator about something or telling the affected individuals. Sure. And so for those ongoing requirements, the um, risk management processes, as well as the management and governance, what I think is going to be really interesting to see is what organizations file in the first round mm. and how different that looks a year from now. Sure. Because over time, organizations are naturally going to be comparing themselves against their peers. And then eventually you're going to see the SEC with its enforcement authority going after organizations that are not meeting these requirements. And I think that that's actually a bit analogous to what we've seen with some other principles-based cybersecurity requirements that have been in effect for the past few years. So a lot of this is, even, even though the, the one part of this telling the world is certainly a sea change. Sure. A lot of this is really just part of a global trend. So when we think about um, GDPR, for example, which went into effect five and a half years ago, there's a requirement in GDPR that organizations must have security safeguards in place that are, quote, appropriate to the risk. 
when we look at CCPA, which is California's privacy, there is a requirement for organizations to have safeguards that are reasonable sure. to the risk. And similarly, there are standards like this in Japan's APPI, their privacy law, the Australian privacy principles, Brazil's LGPD, and many of the dozen state privacy laws that have passed over the past couple of years here in the US. And taken together, what that means is that whatever was appropriate or reasonable the day that that law went into effect is highly likely not going to be appropriate and reasonable a couple of years later sure. by virtue of the fact that adversaries innovate exactly. and their defenders must innovate too. Sure. And I think that when we think about this in the context of the SEC, whatever might be a cybersecurity risk management process um, or management and governance process um, that meets the threshold today is something that's going to have to be revisited every year. And if you're building dynamic enough processes where they are, where, where part of your, your governance and your processes are actually requiring your organization to regularly evaluate your cybersecurity safeguards and evaluate the risk and what adversaries are doing that are targeting your organization, then that's where you're going to have these robust practices in place that will continue to meet that threshold. Where you've done this sort of set it and forget it approach, I think that's where it's going to be very challenging for organizations from a compliance standpoint. But don't you think that this, you know, I understand the laws that are that go into effect and, you know, you have essentially frameworks that you can also base your, your programs off of. But when you start disclosing these programs to the world, right, or uh, disclosing your best practices or, you know, each company may have an iteration of how they, they would adapt those, those, those regulations into their organization. And now you're publicly disclosing, like, you know, what that looks like. I feel like now you're also giving an adversary the opportunity to, to, to build their entire process around and their attack path around maybe areas that are weak, right? Because now you've disclosed that, hey, this is our approach to and our interpretation of these laws and how we apply to the data that we carry and we protect. But now as an adversary, I can use that to build a game plan and say, okay, well, it looks like you're weak in this specific area. And now I can build this entire attack plan around the culture that you've developed, you know, within that security program. And that doesn't seem that, I don't know if I necessarily agree with it. I know we're not going to get into like debates and you know, I do want to talk about what this disclosure means in terms of the, the opposition in Congress right now. However, it just seems that, you know, while the laws make sense and that's always been fine, but not to say like, I'm going to take my best practices and show you the results of that and, and make it public for the world, right? Um, yeah, I, I think fortunately the requirements are not so prescriptive that you have to literally detail everything, every sure. yeah. safeguard you have in place. So that's the fortunate part. So I think um, you, you know, instead, I think those two of those three requirements, we'll separately discuss the materiality requirement, but I think that's incentivizing demonstration of having a robust cybersecurity program in place. And I think there are already some analogies to that for certain sectors where for a long time, for example, organizations regulated by GDPR would on their customer agreements or their data protection agreements need to disclose which technical and organizational measures they have in place to protect data from the customer they're getting the data from. This is more analogous to that in, this, in the sense that you still have to disclose, you have to be specific enough to show you're covering different areas mm -hmm. um, of security, but not so specific that you're giving a full roadmap. But to your point, Christian, that's actually often a challenge, even when we see some of these legal requirements to disclose a software supply chain, yep. to um, 
disclose a full list of sub-processes or whatnot. You might be an organization that has your own security buttoned up. Now you're disclosing a roadmap to the supply chain that you may be dependent upon or have some interdependencies with. And the question is whether there's robust security in place at each one of those vendors and whether or not disclosing that in an organized way is something that could be helpful to an adversary. And that's where, you know, with, with these SEC requirements, you're certainly not needing to disclose all of your vendors or anything. Yeah. I think, um, you know, let's talk a little bit about the weaponization of this, right? Um, because I think if you're not aware of this, there was a, a group, um, an e-crime group that, that ultimately weaponized this disclosure policy. Uh, so they basically have, they, they provided evidence and they basically submitted a complaint, right, to the SEC saying that, hey, we, um, we breached this enterprise, uh, this company, and they failed to disclose the fact that they've been breached. And here's the evidence, right, that we've been in there. This is like, someone just broke into your house and then you're getting in trouble because your security system wasn't good enough. Right. Basically. Or maybe even, maybe even your locks weren't good enough. And then they're calling the police and routing you out and saying, Hey, this guy, this, this house doesn't have good enough locks on it. This person is being negligent. They should be in trouble. I think it also, it also creates this, this fear, right. Of saying like, now I have um, almost this triple extortion, you know, opportunity where, and ad, you know, adversaries, if, if, if for our listeners that have heard, hopefully you've listened to our ransomware and extortion uh, episode, um, where adversaries have, are, are basically trying to monetize their efforts through any means possible. So that includes, you know, launching a piece of ransomware or really taking all of your data and holding it hostage and extorting you to say, either you pay us, you know, or we'll, we'll, we'll give this information to the world and, you'll suffer from a variety of, you know, uh, compliance violations and regulation violations, right? Based upon this breach. Now you're gonna have to pay these fines in some capacity. And now we're seeing them say, well, you know, not only are we going to steal this data or launch ransomware, but we're also going to, you know, go to the SEC and file this complaint unless you pay us and, you know, whatever else comes along with, with, with the monetization efforts that, that, that campaign is tied to. And so, you know, I'm, I'm very curious on how does this even change? A, a, for, actually, a couple questions for you. Is four days, because it's four days, is that correct? That, four days, correct. Four days. Um, how realistic is that, right? And I know we're going to talk about the, the definition of a material. And wh- what is the output of that? Let's, let's take a walk through what that would look like right now, right? Four days, thousands of companies submitting what they believe is a, is, is a material incident. This is going to be, you know, just just for just for everyone's benefit, this is going to come out in the form of what an AK publication. Yes. Right. And so now we're going to have the market flooded with AKs. You know, Wall Street's going to probably freak out. Stocks are going to take a hit. I know I'm. This is not like FUD. I'm not trying to paint this you know apocalyptic type of view of the world, right? But you know, I'm th- thinking there's going to be. Well, you're going to do that on your uh, financial podcast. Exactly. I'm going to do that on my budgeting. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, my next budgeting podcast is going to talk about how to balance a checkbook. <laughs> but, you know, there will be, there's going to be a point where if the market is getting flooded with all these 8Ks, are we going to see like 8K fatigue? I'd love for you to share your, your, your feedback on this. Sure. Uh, lots to unpack there. Yeah. <laughs> first, first with regard to the recent uh, threat actor, I think that we will continue to see extortion yet just as creative as any other endeavor that threat actors undertake, right? Sure, sure. And so um, what's funny is before GDPR went into effect and in the, even in the early days of GDPR, 
there was a lot of um, a lot of predictions that threat actors would do the same thing. Report to regulators about organizations, breach them, then report to regulators under GDPR if, if they hadn't disclosed. And that's one where we really haven't seen that. This SEC one, though, is kind of interesting because the, the threat actor group in this situation basically did their whistleblower complaint a little too early. Yes. Yeah. There was, you know, the website was already up, but the uh, requirements had not gone into effect. Um, but that would be, you know, a, a very bizarre, you know, situation in, in which we have, um, you know, threat actors helping the uh, the regulator with their discovery with their of enforcement violation. <laughs> exactly. Well, we'll see where that goes. But I think the lesson learned there is just to know, note that um, whenever a threat actor is able to infiltrate an organization, they are going to, in modern times, really um, think about different ways they can extort that organization, obviously for their own gain. Yeah. And so that's, that's something that's going to continue to evolve. With regard to the four-day disclosure period, we actually already have some requirements. If we look at the, um, you know, we, we have a lot of things going into effect, like that either have gone into effect, that are already on the books, but aren't in effect yet, or that are being proposed and whatnot. So taken all together, for years, we've had a lot of these 72-hour reporting periods, whereas traditionally we had much longer ones, 30 days and whatnot with different regulations. We also have 24-hour reporting periods. Um, we've even seen in some parts of the world, I believe, eight-hour reporting periods oh, wow. uh, being proposed, um, like in India. And so... There's, there's been a lot of, I guess there's been a lot of competing timeframes for what incident response should look like and what's a reasonable time frame. The one thing that all of these have in common though, is that there's some sort of threshold before the clock even begins. And I think that's really important. Okay. So here with the SEC, um, what we have is we have that materiality threshold. Determining materiality is something that for every organization is going to be different. It's also going to take some time, depending on the incident. There are some incidents where it might be very clear right from the moment you discover the incident that it is material and that clock is going to start ticking. And in those situations, I think what is going to be a challenge is whether or not an organization can actually mitigate the risk in four days, or whether they're going to have to go forth, file an 8K, potentially disclose to the adversary and to the world that they're aware of the incident without actually having a game plan to mitigate the incident hmm. and to further protect the data and stop the incident from becoming even more impactful. That's something that I think is going to be very challenging for certain organizations. There's other organizations where even if the incident's material, because of the fact that they've been able to um, effectively stop the bleeding before they need to disclose, this is something we're sure there, there are going to be concerns about reputational impact and all these other things, but there's at least not going to be a further challenge to their cyber posture. And those are the types of things that are being debated right now by supporters and critics alike, is whether or not this is something that could have a further detrimental impact when an organization is facing an incident. Sure. And frankly, whether or not there are going to be resources that are going to be pulled from mitigating the incident to go work on disclosing the incident because yeah. that's something that's going to take a lot of resources. But I think that the way that organizations would set themselves up for success naturally is putting a lot of time and resources and investment into stopping incidents from happening in the first place. But furthermore, ensuring that if there is an incident, it's not game over. 
Yeah. Meaning that Christian, if you look at a, a lot of what you talk about and, and you emphasize on the show is that, um, a lot of incidents today leverage some form of legitimate credentials, don't use any malware. Um, and therefore organizations that have visibility into the identity plane, in addition to endpoint, in addition to network, in addition to cloud are going to be better suited to ensure that it's not game over merely because there's some sort of initial infiltration. Yeah. Whereas an organization that's only watching one of those planes, you know, is not going to be as well suited. So I think that's really important, putting that um, investment there up front. The other thing that I think is important is for organizations to figure out now, not when they're having the incident, who is going to determine materiality of their organization, how that's going to be determined, Interesting. and what yeah. that process is, and spelling that out internally, and then running tabletop exercises. So for each organization, it's going to be different as far as which executives are involved, um, how that works. But what is important is to ensure that they have the, um, you know, basically a process in place whereby first information is being collected from all the right people and that um, where appropriate lawyers are involved in those early days in directing the investigations. And then that the right business leaders are involved in ultimately making that determination, briefing the board, et cetera. And so that's something that, you know, with other processes that have had to be in place with impact assessments, organizations have had to figure that out ahead of time. That's something where that's even more important now with these SEC requirements. And for a lot of organizations, they already would have to figure out materiality for other things anyway. And There's now they other regulations. find that same thing to yeah. cyber incidents. So you're saying essentially the definition of a material incident should already be defined with other regulations that they're manda mandated by to begin with, right? Well, yeah, ma things? materiality is always going to be... Um, subjective in a sense? Subjective to a specific organization. Sure. So yeah. For example... Yeah. You could have a cyber incident where from a security perspective, a CISO might not think that the incident in and of itself had a high impact, mm -hmm. meaning maybe only one endpoint was infiltrated, the adversary did not move laterally, et cetera. Well, what if that um, beachhead that the adversary got ended up being a system that um, actually had all of the invoices for that organization and put the organization at a standstill. From a security perspective, oh, we stopped the adversary from moving throughout our network. This is a security success. Yeah. From a materiality threshold, perhaps they've shut down the whole business because they hit the right endpoint. Yeah. If it was, um, you know, an organization that perhaps it was not relying upon, uh, you know, cloud infrastructure for their invoicing or, or something like that. Sure. Or even if you think about some um, website defacements we've seen over the years, oftentimes we'll, we'll think about those and we'll say, ah, you know, maybe there was a WordPress vulnerability, adversary got in, everything was very well contained. But nonetheless, if that website was defaced in a way that reduced confidence You're for a period business. of time, yeah. even depending on the time of day and, yeah. and what's going on with the market, that's something where there could be a market or a material impact. Maybe not, maybe so. Interesting. But in other words, there would be um, assessments that would go into that that would not just be cyber. You'd have, be looking at the business impact, communications impact, um, what's going on with the ability to, um, you know, help your customers, your constituents, whoever they are during that time period. So that's where I think it's really important to ensure you have all of your stakeholders looking 
that or being part of the process from the beginning and then looking at this materiality assessment and then also have the key decision makers that you're going to designate to ultimately take all of those inputs and make that decision. No, that, that's actually very interesting. If, actually, I want to touch on this. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there is some opposition for this new SEC regulation. I know that there was there's a, a bill that was submitted, and I think there's something that was submitted in the Senate. It's called the Senate Joint Resolution 50. And basically, there's a reference to, or rather the argument is based on uh, the Cyber Incident Reporting for Critical Infrastructure Act of 2022. Uh, Sir, uh, is it Circia? Circia? Is that how you say it? Circia? That's how we call it in the Beltway. Oh, okay. You guys are way too cool for me in Jacksonville. So Yeah. <laughs> right? Jacksonville. Yeah, Jacks Vegas. Uh, but it was passed by Congress and signed into law uh, in March of 2022. And so the argument is that there's already a, a tremendous amount of appropriate regulations, right, for cyber incident reporting defined within that act. And this is just kind of overkill. So very curious on, on your opinion, like, you know, what, what are you seeing, right? Are, are companies just saying, listen, this is already being done via this act that was submitted about a year ago or a little over a year ago. Why would we want to now follow this new regulation by the SEC? Sure. I, I think those things are um, related, um, but they're not interchangeable. And so mm, okay. um, with, bo with both Circia as well as the SEC, we at CrowdStrike have submitted public comments and been very engaged in in both debates as they've um, been bringing those requirements to fruition. And so CERCIA is designed to apply to critical infrastructure operators. And part of what the rulemaking process has been for CERCIA over the past two years is to even define what an incident is, what should be the timeline during which an incident should be reported to the regulator. And that's one that, again, fits more of that traditional mold of reporting to a regulator rather than telling the world. The SEC requirements are much broader. So there certainly is a Venn diagram of overlap because you have many critical infrastructure providers that are also public companies where they're going to have to comply with both. But then you have so many public companies that are not critical infrastructure entities where therefore CERCIA would not be applicable at all. Um, and then you have um, similarly many critical critical infrastructure companies that are not public companies where the SEC requirements might not be applicable. Applicable, yep. Um, and so that's where they're related in that sense. However, one of the arguments has been about sequencing, meaning that part of CERCIA was this requirement to create the Cyber Incident Reporting Council, the CERC, that would look at how to harmonize already pre-SEC competing cyber incident reporting requirements that have existed for, for years. And so I think there certainly um, has been a big debate within DC about whether or not the time of the SEC regulations is correct in the sense that there are some advocates that would have said, hey, we should wait until the CERC harmonization report is out. Look at those recommendations before we have any new requirements. On the other hand, I think those who would be advocates of the SEC requirements would look at the fact that the SEC purview is different. They're focused um, on investors and maintaining healthy markets, and they're looking at this through a different lens. So that's, that's where that's a bit different. Mm. What I think, though, is at the end of the day, whether your organization is falling into a single Venn diagram or uh, 
you know, a layered Venn diagram of requirements. Most organizations today have competing requirements for incident reporting. Yeah. Um, like we were talking about earlier, because so many of these cyber incidents are also personal data breaches exactly. or PII breaches. Yeah. And we're going to see more and more of these personal data breach requirements going into effect, not only in the U.S., but from abroad that could affect multinational uh, companies in the U.S. and whatnot. So that's where this is extremely complicated. And so I think if, you know, when we, when we think about those who are in the position of being victims, we should be incentivizing, first and foremost, that um, victims are incentivized to have the best cybersecurity in place to not be breached to begin with, but then that if they are, they've mit they're able to mitigate that breach or that cyber incident as quickly as possible. And then with regard to reporting, that reporting is done as simple as possible. So one of the key recommendations from the CERC is actually with regard to a one-stop shop for cyber incident reporting, mm. recognizing that there will be a world of competing Incident reporting requirements for years to come, sure. right? Unless Congress could wave a magic wand tomorrow and, and fix decades worth of overlapping regulations. Recognizing that that will be in place, the key required or the key recommendation really is that there could still be a better process for reporting whereby you report in one place, kind of like a university common application today. Interesting. You okay. can fill out one college application and apply to many universities. You could fill out one incident reporting form, even if that form has to go to multiple regulators on multiple timelines. You're at least filling out that form once. Yeah. If you did that alone, I think that would be very helpful for victims when they're in those trying times. It's their worst day yeah. when they're dealing with the incident. And then they need to deal with telling a regulator too. If they didn't have to deal with telling multiple regulators on, on multiple competing timelines, even if those timelines existed behind the scenes, if they knew the one-stop shop to go to, I think that could be very, very helpful. And that's, that's one of those key recommendations. Other recommendations, of course, that come out of that are these calls to further harmonize, are these calls especially to harmonize even the definition of an incident. Yeah. Um, and that's something that we don't even have common definitions of what an incident is. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Let's go into a crystal ball mode. All right, I'll use my Falcon issued yeah. crystal ball. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You're still doing tower reading, right? No, I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, okay, the, so let's look at the Falcon Nostradamus module has been a big hit. It's even it's more popular in Charlotte. <laughs> exactly. Sure. Let's go back to I, I, I created a very long scenario earlier. One of the questions I asked um, is tied to do you anticipate 8K you know fatigue, right, or an exhaustion? Um, because you know I think I think the I think we're still trying to understand what the implications are. You know, once this once this is passed, for the way that um, enterprises respond, and but more importantly, how everyone else in the world receives this type of data, right? So, very curious, like what what do you, what do you think the implications are, and you know, what, what is this eight K this reigning of eight K is going to look like? I I think um, your use of the term fatigue is fantastic because if we look at how some other cybersecurity reporting requirements have intentionally been designed in recent years, it's been to reduce breach fatigue. Mm. We all remember an era in which we were getting letters in the mail nonstop. Sure. With every place we'd ever shopped at, um, every website we, we'd ever had our information stored on, et cetera, uh, had been breached in some way. And then things started to tighten up where we started to only get that individual notification if it was something that really affected us and we needed to take some sort of action. I think that 
naturally with those thresholds that have gone into place where they're usually impact-based, we've seen a lot of positive changes with that, where we are as individuals notified of high impact um, situations, but we're not notified of every single potential cyber situation, which would have no impact uh, potentially on us. Um, I think here that materiality threshold is going to be interpreted very differently from organization to organization. So this first year, as we look out to 2024, we're going to see a lot of variation. Yeah. So you might see some organizations um, disclosing where another organization facing the same exact fact pattern would make a completely different decision. Sure. So I don't know that we're going to necessarily see, um, you know, disclosure left and right in ways we have not seen Before, in years past. Yeah. I think for many organizations, instead, they're going to take a pretty cautious approach in assessing what materiality is when there is an incident. So they're obviously going to be weighing, um, you know, reading what, what does this regulation mean? What does the letter of the law mean? We need to comply with the law with this notion of, well, we don't want to over-disclose and freak out our investors and have the opposite effect. If this is something we've truly contained, it actually is not having an effect on our, uh, our customers, those whose data we hold or, or would not affect our future business, should not therefore affect our, our shareholders. So you're really going to see, um, I think, some challenging decisions made early on where organizations are going to be guessing a bit. Yeah. Organizations that have a very good methodology in place are going to feel very confident, and that's not going to feel like guessing because they'll have that in place. They'll have something they feel is defensible. But I think for organizations that have some sort of incident and haven't done their homework, yeah. they're going to they're gonna feel like... Um, they're taking a risk no matter what, which way they decide to disclose or not disclose. And then eventually you're going to see some SEC enforcement actions that I think are going to make very clear what is not compliant yeah. and what is something where maybe there's an SEC enforcement action and then that organization had in place something very defensible. And therefore the way that enforcement action turns out is one in which the, the organization um, you know, is, is deemed eventually not to be out of compliance with however they they um, approach disclosure, then those things will be better barometers for organizations naturally to say, oh, I want to be more like organization A, not organization B. So I don't know that we actually will see disclosure fatigue. I do predict we will see more disclosure than we see now sure. in SEC filings. And some of this disclosure, frankly, might be from organizations that have traditionally been very responsible with other obligations they've had to report to privacy regulators or sector-specific regulators. And yet we just haven't seen the reporting because the, the other laws might have a duty to report to a regulator in that situation, but not a duty to tell the world. And therefore, that's just why we haven't seen it. So I, I do predict we will see more, though, when we're, when we're chatting you know, a year from now or even six months from now on this topic. I think we will see more but I don't know that it will rise to the level of fatigue because of that materiality threshold being such that not everything is material. So many cyber incidents happen day in, day out yeah. that yeah. are not material, that are not actually overall affecting an organization in such a way. So four days uh, seems like a very short amount of time. Are there any caveats here or any other third-party influences that could change that? Yeah, actually there is an exception baked into the rules but this is a very narrow exception. The exception is for 
instances in which there is a significant national security or public safety risk. And in those situations, an organization can apply for an exception to filing an AK within four days. The way that the rules were worded, the rules allowed the attorney general to come up with that criteria. And just on December 6th, the FBI, which of course the FBI is a DOJ component, the FBI released their guidance on filing for an exception, a national security or public safety exception. And as part of that guidance, the FBI also released a series of questions that organizations would need to answer as part of their submission in terms of asking for any sort of um, delay. And uh, those delays certainly are intended to be used in very narrow circumstances. So I wouldn't expect those to be the norm. I expect the exception to be the exception awesome. rather than the rule. And so there, the rules themselves permit the attorney general to issue a delay and per, or permitted a delay. Basically, if the attorney general determines that there is a substantial national security risk. And so if there's a substantial national security risk or a substantial public safety risk, then the attorney general can permit the filing of an 8K to be delayed for up to 30 days. In certain circumstances, and under the rule, these are called extraordinary circumstances, the FBI, or rather the attorney general, and it's, I'll get to the FBI involvement in a moment, but the attorney general could actually delay for an additional 60 business days due to substantial national security risks, but not public safety risks for that. And so on December 6th, the FBI came out with updated guidance on what this means and what public companies would need to submit in terms of information to the FBI in order for an exception to be considered. Oh, interesting. And, and for most companies, this probably is not going to apply most, most of the time. Most companies, most of the time, because these days there are so many e-crime actors that are affecting companies in significant ways. And so you could easily have something that um, a company might determine to be material mm -hmm. because it's a big ransomware incident or data leak extortion incident or the like. And yet it might be an e-crime actor behind it. And perhaps that means that, um, you know, they're less likely to get an exception. On the other hand, this isn't a determination based on the actor alone. So it could be an e-crime actor hits an organization where there's some sort of significant um, national security or public safety issues due to how that organization fits in the supply chain. And disclosure right away before the risk is mitigated might actually be detrimental to national security and public safety. But um, interestingly, when the FBI came out with this new guidance on December 6th, they came out with a series of questions that organizations must answer as part of filing this for this exception. And one of the questions asks about attribution to a threat actor. So I think this is, you know, pretty novel where now in the same way we've seen lots of incentives over the past few years with other laws to 
leverage different cybersecurity technologies and approaches and even threat intelligence. Here, I think it's going to be very difficult for an organization to complete the form, fill out all of the questions if they don't have a sense of some sort of cyber threat intelligence um, or, you know, ha haven't worked with an incident response provider or somebody who can help them fill in the gaps when asking for one of these exceptions. Okay. I found that pretty interesting. So if I, let's go back to my, um, my barbecue analogy. So burgers are burnt. However, I was in the middle of this uh, very amazing secret sauce. So just, just hang on, hang on with me. Don't hit next yet to the next episode of Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. Um, so <laughs> okay, so um, burgers are burnt. Aunt Martha is upset. She wants me to tell everybody, but I say, hey, wait a minute. The reason this burgers are burnt, right? Or just so you know, this is a very special secret sauce. And the secret sauce is going to, um, like if it, if, if it leaks at this secret sauce that I've been putting on this burgers, which by the way, is going to, you know, help grow my empire and start thousands of jobs. I'm going to hire and just stimulate the economy. And if this leaks and we're talking about major impact to, to the economy, and we're talking about even potential national security of, of there being word of the secret sauce getting into the hands of my comp competitors. Burger industrial complex. Yeah, exactly, exactly, right? And so I can say, hey, Aunt Martha, or maybe um, her, her best friend that's there, F you know, hence the FBI, um, you know, <laughs> hey, uh, her friend says, pats her on the shoulder and says, hey, you know what? Let him fill out this form. And uh, I think there's a really good justification for him to not tell everybody right now, uh, you know, what's going on, because this could, could add major implications to his uh, secret burger sauce uh, enterprise, and that's going to cost jobs right now. And, uh, and we believe in Christian sauce. So. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't? Who doesn't? Who doesn't? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, he, so here with that analogy, there still would have to be some sort of public safety or national security element. Fine. So fair. Fair enough. You're going to have situations where there could be a, an enormous impact. And yet this exception would not be remotely applicable. Okay. Um, so I, I think in reality, we'll see this apply in very narrow circumstances. Sure. And you will see um, definitely attempts to leverage this probably by many companies. And then it'll be interesting to see um, where these determinations are made and where they're not made. Okay. Yeah. But I imagine that, um, you know, you're going to see them in traditional sectors, especially as we talked about a little earlier, where you have these overlapping requirements where you might have to um, report based on the fact that you're in a specific sector to a certain regulator. Um, and then you have the SEC obligation because you're also a public entity. And maybe, um, you know, if you're critical infrastructure or something like that, um, or you're part of some critical supply chain, it might be something where perhaps, uh, you know, there might be some less obvious cases at times that are approved. However, I think the main intention here is going to be for the pretty obvious national security and public safety cases and not capturing a lot of the gray, but time will tell. Um, and something here that the FBI guidance is very clear on is that an organization cannot even submit a request for an exception until after they've made the materiality determination. And also, it still needs to be within that four-day period. So you can't... Which seems pretty extreme. Which seems pretty, pretty extreme. So in other words, you make, you make your uh, materiality uh, assessment 
and you determine its material, well, now your four-day clock starts, right? It doesn't start before that, but that's when it starts. But then you can't wait eight days, not file your 8K, and then say, you know what, let's try asking the FBI if we can delay this. That's not going to work. So the FBI has made that clear. So with your burgers, it's going to either, you're either going to tell everybody right away, or you're going to ask for permission not to tell everybody right away. Those are essentially your two choices there. Once you've determined you've absolutely burnt the burgers in such a way that you've ruined your party. So the way the process will actually work is that basically the FBI will collect the request for an extension. Then they'll be the ones that conduct fact-finding procedures based off of what an organization has stated and the questions they've answered. And then they'll make a referral to DOJ, to Maine Justice. And then DOJ will issue a delay determination and decide whether or not an organization qualifies for one of these public safety or national security exceptions. I think um, our listeners are probably uh, still going to be keeping a, a close eye on a lot of the new correspondence that comes out. And so, um, you know, re- regarding these regulations, and I'm sure that we'll have some follow-up episodes also that, that highlight maybe any updates and then also how this impacts um, not only various industries, but more importantly, if we have more adversaries that are targeting um, or trying to weaponize these regulations, very much like the uh, Alpha Spider affiliates have done uh, in the past, uh, we will keep everyone up to date on this type of activity. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's where the extortion angle could get pretty interesting is you could see organizations that have filed an exception, gotten an exception approved, and then a threat actor could still try to extort them by claiming oh, well. that they haven't done their filings within four days and whatnot. Oh. Yeah, that's extreme. So, Drew, what can you give our listeners, you know, as, as kind of a wrap up, like these are my recommendations, you know, moving into, you know, the, the, the next year of, of probably a very fluid modification of not only this regulation, but probably some new laws that will probably you know, will pass as, as a result of this. You know, I, I know that we're very big advocates for having IR retainers and there, you know, I know some of the smaller organizations out there that don't necessarily have the staff to even define something material. Are going yep. to probably leverage third parties. So, like, what what would be some parting words for for the listeners on this? Well, one thing I think every organization needs to do is see all of this as part of a trend. So, we had uh, just a little over a month ago, the New York Department of Financial Services issue their final set of new cybersecurity requirements. So, many organizations might need to comply with those in addition to the SEC rules. Uh, Next month in the state of New York, again, coincidentally, we're going to have new proposed cybersecurity laws for healthcare organizations. We are going to see CERCIA um, issue it, or or the the final rulemaking tied to CERCIA come out in in 2024. So if we look at all these things individually, I think you're going to get lost in terms of figuring out what should your organization do? What should you be doing? So I think you need to step back and say, and ask, okay, what are the common trends um, with all of these requirements? And what they are is there are requirements to have robust cybersecurity programs in place to protect your organization against a breach to begin with. Then there are oftentimes with these requirements, requirements to be able to demonstrate that you have these robust cybersecurity protections in place. In place yeah. And then requirements to be able to respond quickly when you have an incident. Again, those timelines and those thresholds might vary, but if you have that process in place to evaluate those thresholds, to respond quickly to a cyber incident, 
And then to be able to report, sometimes that means having outside counsel lined up. Yeah. Oftentimes that means having a an incident response retainer with a cybersecurity company in place ahead of time. If you have those things in place and you're doing tabletop exercises with your organization, maybe you're choosing a partner cybersecurity company to do those tabletop exercises with, I think that's going to be um, fundamentally important. And then asking those questions on visibility and coverage, just basic visibility. Do I actually have visibility into what's going on on the endpoint plane, the identity plane, the network plane, the cloud plane, or do I have blind spots? Yeah. If you're asking those things now, then if and when you face an incident, you're going to be prepared for the regulatory requirements or better prepared for them because you're already going to have a situation in which it's not game over just because you had some sort of infiltration. It's not game over with the regulator because you already have some muscle memory into how your organization should respond, who should be making those determinations on threshold, whether it's materiality or impact-based. And so that's what I would implore all organizations, big and small, to do. And if you're a small organization, frankly, today is a is you know a, a time where things are much better suited for you. Five years ago, if you were a small organization, it was very hard to be able to afford or even run sophisticated cybersecurity technologies. Today, you can rely upon managed service providers that have access to these technologies and can deliver them. Yeah. That's a game changer. It is. Whereas years ago, if you were a large multinational organization, you might have a robust cybersecurity program because you could afford the headcount and you, you could afford the folks and have them in place and have the talent that could actually run sophisticated cybersecurity uh, software and you could afford the software. Well, now you don't have to run all of that yourself. And I think that's very important. Okay, so it seems like this is all about some transparency, and uh, we are going to keep you abreast of any changes that are being made to these SEC regulations, what the FBI has to say about this. Naturally, we, uh, we want to avoid you having your digital burgers on fire, right? Or having to avoid you telling everyone at the table when the burning isn't as charred as you expect it to be, or isn't as bad as it should be, right? And so... Uh, as closing remarks, uh, we definitely want some feedback. Please check out uh, our contact information in the show notes. We'll have some links to some really great uh, reference documentation and articles that cover these different topics. You'll also have access to Drew's information. I know you're going to be speaking at a few events uh, coming up. Isn't that right, Drew? Um, yeah. Uh, generally, um, you know, it seems like almost every month I'm, I'm somewhere. Um, something coming up uh, springtime, though, that'll be kind of interesting and I'm very curious as to where we'll be with the development by then is I will be speaking with a panel of uh, very distinguished colleagues at the IAPP Global Privacy Summit on security by design and default. And so I'm really looking forward to that event. No, looking forward to hearing that. I'll probably try to get out there as well. And uh, no, this is exciting. I think this is exactly what our listeners are very interested in understanding. I think there's a very big you know, underscoring of the word understanding. And again, as we get some updates, we'll publish those. Let's, uh, let's keep those burgers in uh, a good condition. Uh, let's be transparent. No one wants to get that email uh, saying, oops, I did it again. Uh, you know, I don't know. Is that, is that Brittany plagiarism? I don't know. But in any event, uh, we appreciate our listeners. We thank you so much for this episode. Drew, thank you for coming out. I thought this was a really great conversation. And uh, we'll catch our listeners on the next one. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me and look forward to the next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to our podcast and head over to CrowdStrike.com forward slash adversaries to learn more about the many bad guys we track. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on the Adversary Universe podcast.
This is the Adversary Universe Podcast.